Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Good to be with y'all here this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeremy Bass, the, the lead pastor of our contemporary service. Really great to be here on this cold winter day. When uh, I was in Kentucky, yes, finally, if only this was a week ago, Silent Night with Candles would have been a lot better, but alas, we made it, we made it work. Uh, when I was in Kentucky, my pastor was from Ohio, and I was a southern boy, and when the roads first ice, I said, are we going to cancel church this morning? And he said, I will never cancel church for anything. And so uh, I can brave the cold if he made me brave icy roads. Uh, and y'all can brave the cold as well. It's good to be with y'all here today. Uh, today is Epiphany Sunday. It is the Sunday that we celebrate the Magi coming and visiting uh, the baby Jesus. So when the song 12 Days of Christmas, it's not just a fun Christmas song. Uh, we believe that we celebrate celebrate Christmas time, starts the day of Christmas, the 25th, and it goes 12 days until January 6th, where we celebrate the birth of Christ, and we are right in the middle of that. So today we celebrate the Magi coming to us. Our scripture for today then is going to be the Magi coming and visiting Jesus. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, if you have your Bibles and you want to open up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord, friends. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd to my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After he had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the story, we see that there are three separate people or three separate groups of people that all have an interaction with the Christ child. They all respond to the person of Jesus Christ differently. And we're going to kind of look at those three different people and their responses to Jesus and how oftentimes that mimics what our responses to Jesus oftentimes is as well. So the first that we see in the story is King Herod, is King Herod. King Herod, we see, is threatened by Jesus. 
He feels threatened by Jesus and he has zeal for the wrong things. King Herod is threatened by Jesus and has zeal or passion for the wrong things. Uh, I'm a big history nerd. You may have picked up on that just in my sermons. I was a history major in undergrad. So when I do research for sermons, I love digging into the historical context. And I was reading about Herod, uh, King Herod. And if you read sort of a biography about Herod's life, you would think that you were reading a soap opera script. Herod had 10 wives, which one could argue is too many wives. He had 10 wives. All of those wives had kids, and then all of those kids wanted to become king. Uh, Almost none of those kids wanted to wait till Herod was dead to inherit the throne, and they all actively tried to kill him. It's just a story of backstab betrayal just over and over and over again. There was uh, this one kid uh, that pitted Herod against another one of his kids that Herod said, hey, or this son said, hey, Herod, uh, that son's trying to take over your throne. You should go kill him. Herod said, yeah, that's a great idea. So Herod goes and he tries to kill him and they meet and they reconcile and Herod says, you know what, I'm not going to kill him. And then the exact same thing happens again. The son that was tried to kill pits Herod against his other son. He goes to his other son to try to kill him and then he reconciles and says, you know what, I'm not going to kill you after all. Herod changes his mind uh, and is convinced by one of his sons to kill other of his sons who he told him were actively plotting to take over the throne, but were not actually plotting to take over the throne, and Herod has innocent children killed. And then Herod goes and he kills the one who was actively plotting to take over his throne, who had convinced him to go and kill the innocent people. And we just see that Herod is literally doing whatever it takes for him to stay king of the Jews, doing whatever it takes to maintain his power, maintain his control over his throne, even if it means killing his own sons. We see the great lengths that Herod goes to, the passion and the zealousness that he has for protecting his own kingdom. And we see here in the biblical text It's exactly what he does with Jesus, that he hears there is a king of the Jews that has been born, and sort of antenna ears go up, and he's alert, and he's like, I got to get rid of this new king. Herod's threatened by Jesus, threatened of what Jesus will do with his power and control. Herod has a passion for staying king and maintaining all that control, and he hears about the Christ child, and he's afraid that this baby would usurp his powers, king of the Jews. And I think we're so oftentimes quick to not identify with Herod. And I think that there's some basis behind this. I don't think y'all are going to go commit mass genocide. If I did think that, this would be a very different sermon this morning. But I don't think that. So on some level, correct. We are not Herod because we're not going to go and slaughter a bunch of babies. On the other hand... There is a level in which we are like Herod, in which we love to protect our own kingdoms. We love to maintain control, protect our own power, maintain control over our lives, set my priorities for my life. So we have this desire, this zeal to keep what is ours, ours, and we look at Jesus and we see him as a threat to that control over our own lives. 
Because that means that there's someone else who is coming into the world who is king, and it's not us. I don't know if any of y'all do this. When, we, when me and Erica go on road trips, uh, I'm the kind of person that likes to drive almost all of the way there. Am I the only one that does it? I mean, Erica's a very capable driver. I just like to be in control of driving the car. I like to decide how fast we're going. I like to decide uh, when we're going to make a stop. It's just some, there's something about being in control of the car and being in control of a road trip because I think that there's something deeply ingrained within us that we are people who desire to be in control. Or people who don't like to give up that control. Just like I enjoy being in control of the car, being in control of the road trip, uh, I also have a tendency, desire to be in control of my own life. To be the king in my own life. We have this desire to be kings over our own lives, to rule over our own lives, to set our own priorities, to be zealous about what we want to be zealous about. And are we unwilling to let go of control of the thing that drives us? Herod was passionate, but he was passionate about the wrong thing. Are we zealous for success? Are we zealous for our image that we're projecting to others? Are we zealous for chasing that bigger paycheck? Zealous for the success that our kids are going to have? Are we chasing after those things? Are we hesitant to make Christ the king of our lives because we enjoy being king and we don't want his priorities to be ours? Are we like Herod, loving, ruling over our own kingdom? The second group that we see here is the apathetic religious leaders. The apathetic religious leaders who are apathetic to Jesus. In the gospel story, you see that Herod hears about this new king. There's a king who's been born, and so he gathers up all the the people who have all the God facts, the people who know the scripture backwards and forwards, the people who are leaders in God's temple, leaders of the Jewish faith, and he says, where is the Messiah to be born? Where is this king going to be born? And like good church people, the religious leaders know the answer immediately. And yet, it does not lead them to do anything. And yet, they've heard that the possible king that they should have been waiting for has been born. And they stay where they are. They have zero desire to go and see Jesus. They're perfectly content to stay right where they are. You know, if you're a first century person reading the story, the most shocking part of this story is that Gentile, pagan, worshiping magi care more about Jesus than the Jewish religious leaders who should have been eagerly awaiting for him to come. That these people's love for God had dwindled, had diminished, they'd lost their passion. They lost their zeal. Have you lost your passion? Have you lost your zeal? Has the love that we used to burn like a fire in your heart, does it feel like it's a, a, a small dying flame? 
one of my favorite sermons from John Wesley. <clears throat> I mentioned it before. It's the Almost Christian. It's one of the most convicting John Wesley sermons I've read. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to go read it. He talks about this problem that he sees in the church. So he, he tries to distinguish between what he would call the almost Christian and then what he would call the altogether Christian. And he writes about how the almost Christian can do literally every good church thing. The almost Christian can read their scriptures, can pray, can give all their money to the poor, can give their service to the poor, can do all the right things. And Wesley says, yet they are almost a Christian. He says, the difference between the almost Christian and the altogether Christian is the love of God. The linchpin, the, the key turning point for Wesley is not the things that you do, is do you have the love of God? Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. God? Is the love of God the motivating factor behind your actions? Because that's the whole point of this. Do you love God? And we see here in this text that the religious leaders had a lot of God facts. They knew exactly what Herod was talking about. They were just like, do you know something about a king being born? And they got the answer right away. They had all the great biblical facts. And yet we see in the text that their hearts were far from the Lord because they did not seek with the knowledge that they had. The difference between them and Herod is there's not sort of a hatefulness of Jesus. There's just an apathy. They don't really care all that much. Jesus has this to say in the book of Revelation about apathy. It's one of the most convicting passages, which, quick aside about the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a book of hope that basically says Jesus wins in the end. So if anyone uses Revelation to peddle fear to you, they're not worth listening to. Uh, Revelation 3, Jesus says this to his church. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That, that Greek word is literally vomit. I'm going to vomit you out. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth, but do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me the gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's this idea that Jesus is getting at, that the church of Laodicea thought that they were just fine where they were at. That they were lukewarm, apathetic, and Jesus says, I wish that you were either on fire for me or cold and far away from me, but you're neither. You're this in-between. You're lukewarm. And so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But Jesus says, I want you to be on fire for me. What's the worst kind of coffee? It's lukewarm coffee. You know the coffee that you sit down and then you do something and you forget about it and you come back and you drink it about an hour later and it's this like weird cold but not like iced coffee. It's this weird cooled down. And what do you do? You spit it out because it's gross. <laughs> That's the image that Jesus is painting for us in the book of Revelation. That lukewarmness is not what the Lord intends for us. Lukewarmness is this idea that these religious leaders had that we don't need Jesus all that much. Or we don't want him to come and disrupt anything that's going on. Jesus, just let me come to church, check off the church box, and then just leave me alone to my kingdom. Is that our heart as we enter into the new year? We have Herod, who's zealous for the wrong things, who sees Jesus as a threat, then we have the, magi, or the, the religious leaders who are apathetic to Jesus. And then we have the magi who were zealous in searching for Jesus. The magi who were zealous in searching for Jesus. And these were pagans. They most likely worshipped the stars. They used the stars to divinize, to see what the will of the gods were. And what's interesting is even the stars can't help but proclaim that Jesus has come. And so they look up to the stars and they see the good news that a, a king has been born to Israel. And they look and they look for this new king. And they go on a sacrificial journey to find this king. Uh, most likely they were magi. They were from uh, Iran or Iraq, uh, modern day Iran or Iraq. And the journey from there to Bethlehem would have taken anywhere from three to six, three to nine months, depending on where they were from. It took many months for them to come to Jesus. It was sacrificial for them to go to a king that they don't even serve under. They weren't Jews. And yet they take this trek, and they only take this trek, but they bring expensive sacrificial gifts to the Christ child. Gold. Bring gold, expensive gold and expensive spices to lay before the new king. That those who were far off from Yahweh, those who were far off from the Lord of the Covenant, did what the king of the Jews and the religious leaders of the Jews failed to do. They were passionate and zealous about finding this new king. The most surprising people in the story are the ones who searched the most hard for Jesus. It's a sharp contrast that the gospel of Luke is painting between Herod, who fiercely protects his own fiefdom, his own kingdom, his own control, that he protects it out of fear, fear of what this new king will do. 
and the Magi who come and sacrificially lay their gifts before the king? Do we fear sacrificing to Jesus because we're afraid of what he'll ask of us? Do we know the heart of God or do we not know the heart of God? Do we believe in our hearts that he desires goodness for us? That he desires fullness of life for us? Or are we afraid that that's not really what his intentions or desires are for our life? I had this really vivid memory growing up. Uh, Vivid because it was very painful. Uh, When I was old enough to reach up and touch the stove, I was in the kitchen one day and my mom was cooking and she said, Jeremy, don't touch the stove. It's very hot. And I said, you don't know what you're talking about, Mom. Uh, I, I want to touch that stove now more than anything I've ever wanted to touch in my life. And I remember very vividly being like, I don't believe that sh- it's going to be as hot as she says it is. There's no fire on it. It's just a piece of metal. How hot can it really be? And I reach out and I touch it. And guess what? Uh, the stove was very, very hot. And it burned my whole hand up. And my mom had warned me, don't touch the stove because she knew that it was hot. And if I touched the stove, my hand would burn and it would be hot and painful. And I'd have to deal with having then a burnt hand for a while. But I didn't trust her. I didn't believe when she told me the stove was hot. How many times do we treat God the same way? We believe the commands of the Lord are like my mom saying, don't touch that, it's hot. It's not for your flourishing. It's not for fullness of life for you. And we say, I don't believe you. Let me try it anyways. Do we think God is keeping us from something exciting or do we see that God is not letting us harm ourselves? Are we willing to be like the Magi and reprioritize our lives, to sacrifice like the Magi, to be shaken from our apathy? Do we see Jesus as a king who is worthy to submit to? What's really interesting about Herod's story, I think, is he did everything that was right in the eyes of the world. He did everything he was supposed to do. He protected his throne his power, his kingdom, that usurpers were coming and trying to take it over. And so he did what a good king should do. He stood his ground and he stood against those who tried to plot against him and he stood against those who were trying to overthrow him. And yet in following the way of the world, we see that Herod misses out on Jesus. How often are we following the way of the world and missing out on the way of Jesus? Matthew Later in his gospel, Jesus will say this in Matthew 16, 26. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Friends, the world will always call us to live one way. It will always tell us how we ought to prioritize our lives. It will always tell us that we need to be like Herod and maintain control and power in our lives. And they'll even tell us how we should live our Christian faith. That we should be good Christians who keep Jesus in his Jesus corner and not let it bleed out into every area of our life. That's the way the world will constantly tell us to live. Or are we going to follow the sacrificial way of the Magi? and the sacrificial way of Jesus, and live differently than those around us. 
Do we believe that in this new year, Christ is calling us to live differently? You know, most of the New Year's resolutions, if you ever look them up, uh, most of them are to do more things. I'm going to uh, exercise more. I'm going to read more. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to do all these extra things. What if instead of doing a bunch of extra things this year, Jesus is asking us to pare things down and reprioritize? Where if Jesus is asking us and calling us to live a pace of life that is different than the world around us. I recently started this book this past week or past month. Uh, It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Fantastic book. I'm already about 50 pages in and it's already one of my favorite books. And it was written by a pastor in Portland planted a church, grew it to over a thousand in a period of a few years, just like rapid church growth, rapid success. He had all the success in the eyes of the world. And yet he had this moment one night where he looked at himself 10, 20, 30 years down the road, and he did not like the person that he saw himself becoming. He says this in his book, looking at himself 10, 20 years down the road, he says this, I see a man who is successful, but by all the wrong metrics, church size, book sales, speaking invites, social status, etc., and the new American dream, your own Wikipedia page. In spite of all my talk about Jesus, I see a man who is emotionally unhealthy and spiritually shallow. I'm still in my marriage, but it's a duty, not a delight. My kids want nothing to do with the church. She was the mistress of choice for dad, an illicit lover I ran to, to hide from the pain of my wound. I'm basically who I am today, but older and worse, stressed out, on edge, quick to snap at the people I love most, unhappy, preaching a way of life that sounds better than it actually is, always in a hurry." Friends, what if this year Jesus is calling us not to mimic the world like Herod, but to live sacrificially like the Magi? You know, it was interesting. One of the the common themes that I heard in the start of the pandemic was uh, when schedules got cleared, when things were taken off the calendar, people commented about how much they love to spend time with family now how they got to spend so much time with family and how it's so nice to not have that calendar be filled. Friends, how quickly have we filled that calendar back up with things? How quickly have we taken maybe those lessons the Lord was trying to tell us that the pace of life that you've been living is not the one that I desire for you. I desire a different pace, a different way of living. And so what John Mark Comer does in his book, he he says that, what I did is I, I quit leading. He was leading a multi-site, thousand-plus church, success in every metric, but he said, my life is in shambles and I don't want to live that way. And so he took on a smaller church in downtown Portland and he says this, I ended my 10-year run at the church. My family and I take a sabbatical. It's a sheer act of grace. I spent the first half comatose, but slowly I wake back up to my soul. I come back to a much smaller church. We move into the city. I walk to work. I start therapy. I focus on my emotional health. 
I work fewer hours. I date my wife. I play Star Wars Legos with my kids. It's for them, really. I practice Sabbath. I detox from Netflix. I start reading science fiction for the first time since high school. I walk the dog before bed and, you know, live. Friends, are we living? Are we living the way of Jesus that's different? Are we willing to sacrifice the things that the world values to walk the pace of the rabbi, to walk and follow Jesus, to be unhurried like he is unhurried, to live life the way that Jesus does? You know, Bert rarely, this is the first time in a year and a half he's told me, put this in your sermon. And so when Bert says that, you do it. Um, he was talking about what the Lord's been impressing on him about his vision for the church this next year. And he said this in reflecting on his, uh, his reflections for the text for the day. So I'd encourage you to go and listen uh, to his sermon later on this week. He said, friends, we are not going back to Herod. We are going to follow the way of the wise men and not go back to Herod. We're not going to simply go back to the old way of doing things. So we're not going to muddle through and get through this next year. Instead, we are going to flourish. Flourish by following the way of the Magi, the way of Christ, and not by going back to Herod. Friends, what if this next year Jesus is calling us to live fully it's a promise that he makes in his gospel. I've come that you might have life and life to the fullest, life abundantly. And it's a way and it's a pace of life that may be different from the way of the world. And are we willing to sacrifice what the world deems as successful to take up the way of Jesus and trust that his way is so much better than what we've been doing ourselves? Will we hear the call of Christ today, friends? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, band and communion stewards, would y'all please come up? Friends, as we remember and celebrate communion together, we remember that we worship a God who took time out of his busy three-year ministry to have meals with his friends. He one night when he was unhurried living with his friends, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which I break for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you, Father, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by your blood, so that we can go forward into the world, portraying a witness, a pace of life, a way of living that is different than the way of those around us. Give us courage and conviction. Lord, let us hear the loving call of you to live differently and trust that your way is better than ours. As we pray the prayer that your son taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.